Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the saga of General Jonathan Vance has taken another big twist this week with the news that he likely fathered a child with Major Kelly Brennan. And this is years after he said their relationship had ended. So why is this so significant? Well, for more on this, we're joined by Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning, Cindy. Okay, so what is the deal with this? What is it that General Vance has said in the past about this? So when I asked General Vance about this, uh, the only time he's actually responded on the record was back in February. And it's before we broke the story. And we had all of these allegations um, for legal reasons and for other reasons. We did not feel it was ours to put out there, the allegation that there may be children. But Major Brennan decided that she wanted to do that at a parliamentary committee uh, when she appeared. That's when the information became public. But before that, we had asked uh, General Vance, And I asked him, are you the name of the first child's father? And he says, no. And I said, are you the name of the second child's father? And he said, kind of paused and said, I I really kind of don't even know who you're talking about. Um, And I, I wasn't really sure what to make of that because he just told me previous he didn't know who Major Kelly Brennan was either. And I had substantial evidence in the form of text messages that showed Um, These two were very, very close. There was a lot of communication happening. So I wasn't sure really what to make of that. At the end of the day, we didn't have a DNA test. So there was no way to really know if the children were his. Um, Major Brennan pursued uh, General Vance to to give uh, a DNA test. Two children were tested. The first child is not his child. The second child uh, identified with a 99 point nine 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 one percent chance of being his child um and obviously it's not about this being salacious or oh did somebody have a kid and i think that's how some people first hear it yeah it's about a relationship with a subordinate that was inappropriate and considered to be sexual misconduct at times under military law it goes to uh, Major Brennan having told us that he knew about the children, uh, one of which was his, that he didn't pay child support on those that, that particular child or ever try to. And beyond that, it disproves his claim that the relationship ended, the sexual relationship, in 2001. Because somehow there is a child that is the product of that relationship who was born quite a bit after 2001. We're not identifying any more than that. because we do want to protect the identity and any kind of identifying characteristics um, of this young person. So Mercedes, to be clear, this, this, so General Major Brennan was working under General Vance at the time in the military. She worked under him at various times. We're not being more specific on the date when the child was born. Right. Because if you know the family, it allows you to start narrowing down who it might be. 
Um, but it, it definitely happened after he said the relationship ended. Uh, he told me there was no sex. There was, um, you know, just a friendship that he was trying to help and support her. Um, and that any characterization that the relationship was anything other than that, including at times while she was under his command, was false. So this proves at at least one point um, that statement is not true. Then the question becomes, is the statements that she made about the various times while she was under his command, including his CDS, uh, where the relationship was ongoing true? Um, but this is sort of some, some pretty high-level proof uh, that it was yeah. certainly happening at one point. Is there any uh, accountability for this uh, as a result of what Jonathan Vance, General Vance, has been saying? Well, that's a great question, and I apologize if your listeners are hearing uh, that I'm at the, at the airport, airport on my yes. way to Vancouver <laughs> to see uh, the Vancouver Global Team. Um, so the question becomes now, what happens in the courts? The DNA test um, is, you know, very much a court standard. Um, he has not paid child support. He could be ordered to pay child support. Um, you know, Major Brennan's very clear. She says she's never asked him for a cent. She's never asked him for child support. He's also never offered... Um, to find out if the child is his or to pay child support. So there certainly could be uh, legal obligations or a legal battle there to be had. Uh, but in the meantime, Vance is doing court today. That's on a criminal obstruction of justice charge. The police say that he called up Major Kelly Brennan uh, and instructed her to lie about the, the nature of their past relationship to the police to say that it was platonic. And of course, we had tapes of that that we played Unreal. a while ago uh, of him insisting that the truth was that there was no sex after Gagetown, which was 2001. Uh, and now we have a child who was born um, quite a bit after that. Okay, he is retired, but he still has to appear in court on this charge. Well, yes, because this is actually a criminal call right. charge. It's he he can't be charged in the military. He's too high ranking. So the military has its own justice system. But it turns out if you are a three star general or above, it can't hold you accountable. If you're a four star, it definitely can't because there has to be multiple people who outrank you on your panel. No one outranks the chief of the defense staff. So military police couldn't have tried him that way, even if they wanted to. So he won't face any charges on the sexual misconduct front. However, this is a criminal court charge in a civilian court on obstruction of justice, and it will proceed through the civilian justice system. Oh, my goodness. Such a huge loophole. Mercedes, thank you for that. Thanks so much. That's our Mercedes Stevenson there, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, as you heard, also at the airport, getting ready to take a flight to come out here uh, to work election night on Global. So you'll be seeing her in a couple of days for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Can you believe that was number 12 on the Rolling Stones top 500 greatest songs of all time list? Number 12. Come on. That is a great song. I think it deserves to be higher than that. But this is, believe me, an argument that many people are having right now since Rolling Stone published their list this week. That's why we're chatting with our Raji Sohal about it this morning. Good morning, Raji. <laughs> Good morning, Simi. Okay, that song is a banger. Yes. I, mean, I think anything by Stevie Wonder should really be way higher, for sure. Thank you. So, the number one spot has now gone to Aretha Franklin for her version of Respect. Now, I have all the respect in the world for that song. It's in, it's an incredible song. I think there's a reason why it was chosen this year, and I expect for it to be 
what do they say? Deceited, unseated? No, deceited. Dethroned. Well, I, I think you mean dethroned. dethroned. Yes. Love that. Dethroned. Yeah. The queen will eventually be dethroned from that. I think they gave it to her because it's been quite a year. And I think women have been upholding a lot, holding a lot down for a lot of people in the last year and a half. And so I am happy to see Aretha take the number one spot now, but I don't think she necessarily deserves it till the end of time. Oh, look at you. Well, they they do this list like every 10 years. So this is a different version than the one they came out with like 10, 10 plus, I think, years ago. Yeah. And that's so why there's Bob, so much debate about it because it's changed. Yeah, exactly. Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan was number one in 2004. And I love Bob Dylan. I love that song. It's an incredible song. The lyrics are beautiful. The melody is just wonderful but there's no way that that is the number one song of all time no way well, now it's number so, four so yeah so it deserves to be somewhere up there i would have been totally satisfied with marvin Gaye's what's going on being number one right and but I, where is that that that's still in the top 10 right it's it's number, number six. six okay let's now just let was, me quickly run through the top 10 here for people raji mm-hmm. so they can r- get raging along with us. Number one was Aretha Franklin, Respect, according to the Rolling Stone. Uh, Number two was Public Enemy, Fight the Power. Number three is Sam Cooke, A Change is Gonna Come from 1964. Number four is Bob Dylan, Like a Rolling Stone. Number five is Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit. Number six, Marvin Gaye, What's Going On. Number seven, The Beatles, Strawberry Fields Forever. Number eight is Missy Elliott, Get Your Freak On. Number nine is Fleetwood Mac Dreams, and this one, I can't even, I can't even, actually. Number 10 <laughs> is Outcast's Hey Ya. Like, listen, I like Hey Ya as much as the next person, but is that the 10th greatest song of all time? No, it is no, not. No, Tom, Tom York's uh, lead singer, he's the lead singer of Radiohead. Um, he's a legendary songwriter. He's probably one of the best ever. And he, like, maybe five years ago in an article with Rolling Stone uh, said that Hey Ya was was a banger. And I had to revisit it and just, like, exclusively listen to that song. No visuals, not the video, because the video is amazing, very catchy. And it is such a good song. It's so well produced and deliberately catchy, and you can't get it out of your head afterwards. It also transforms your day in the way that uh, that happy song by Pharrell Williams did uh, not too long ago. So <laughs> it, it deserves to be on the list of 500. Number 10, though. Oh, wow. That was surprising. <laughs> yes, it was. I, am, I feel the next 10 much more than I feel the top 10 because Stevie Wonder was 12 with Superstition. Rolling Stones Gimme Shelter at 13. I love that song. Uh, then at four, 15, Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand. I thought, yeah, that's classic. Beyonce at 16 with Crazy in Love. Queen. Meh. Doesn't deserve to be up there at Oh my all. goodness. All right. Queen, Bohemian Rhapsody at number 17. Prince's Purple Rain. Yes. At number 18. John Lennon Imagine at 19. And then Robin Dancing on My Own at 20. This list seems so random to me. Yeah, I would say the top 10 reads like it came from my generation. I think millennial, that's a millennial list. It's like songs that matter to us. Oh. Uh, many we adopted from generations that's before, true. but that we can agree with. And then I, I think that the next 10, the 10 to 20 that you just named, are probably your generation. Thanks, Except for Raji. Robin's dancing on my own. No, no offense. <laughs> but I agree with you for about Robin's dancing older people, Raji is saying. That's what the next 10 is for, for the older people. Also, see me, John Lennon's Imagine at 19 
is kind of low. I mean, that song, it's an anthem for an entire time, but it also has timelessness to it. And I think one of the number one markers for these kinds of lists should be, can it stand the test of time? Can it go through uh, different life events? Will it always be loved? Yes, absolutely. And like uh, politically even and internationally, I think it should transcend all of that. I am happy to see that Prince is on there. But um, yeah, Purple Rain. Don't, I mean, don't, don't even, don't I, go I'm there. I'm following my words here. Joni, <laughs> Joni Mitchell is at 26 with A Case of You. Bruce Springsteen doesn't show up till 27 with Born to Run. Uh, Talking Heads at 28. Um, and then with that, you've got Lord with Royals at 30. It doesn't belong on the list. No, it does not belong on the At all. list. No. That's not timeless. And like, I think that maybe an intern, you know, maybe squeezed into this list at the last second before it was published to put Lord in there. There's just no way. Also, Case of You, Joni Mitchell. I mean, arguably number one or two. Hopefully next year they fix that. Really? So you're obviously a huge Joni Mitchell fan. That song, that song, Simi. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> yes, yes Raji, that song. It's a work of perfection. And also, nobody else could do it. It's one of the most covered songs, apparently, uh, by other musicians. But huh. nobody touches it the way that Joni Mitchell does. Okay, that so better be up there next year. You would put that at number one? I would put Case of You. Maybe I would give it number two. Oh, interesting. All right, well, what do you, what, I'd love to hear from people about what they think is the number one song of all time. Raji, thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. But now let's talk a little federal election campaign, shall we? We've got just a couple of days left. Last weekend, final couple of days of this election campaign, we thought let's check in with our chief political correspondent, David Aiken, with where we are at at this point. Good morning, David. Morning, Simi. How are you doing? I am good, thank you. How are you doing? Because you have been going flat out for the last four weeks. Yeah, but you know what? It's uh, This is what I like to do. And, and what a year. Five elections. B.C., of course, Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, uh, Nova Scotia, and uh, now the big one, the federal election. Five pandemic elections. We survived the first four, obviously. Um, but, you know, on this final weekend, I think the pandemic is front and center as particularly the liberals try to sort of make the case for re-election because of the public health emergency in Alberta. There's lots of videos that the liberals are pushing around right now of Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leader, earlier this year saying, Jason Kenney, the premier of Alberta, of course, Jason Kenney, boy, he did a great job managing this pandemic. And of course, this week, Kenny had to say he was actually wrong. He had to apologize. There's some new public health measures in Alberta. They're going to run out of ICU beds. And if the Liberals can successfully say, you vote for Aaron O'Toole, you're getting that kind of pandemic management, that's probably good for the Liberals. Conservatives, on the other hand, they want to make this ballot question all about economic recovery, that they're best positioned to manage that. And that's probably good if people are going in the ballot box thinking about that. So uh, this last weekend, you know, events, 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 and really the, you know, what everybody in the country is looking at in Alberta right now, a uh, terrible situation, and that may impact uh, O'Toole's chances. Yeah, is it going to have to cause the Conservatives and Aaron O'Toole, do you think, to pivot on their message? Because I know he got asked a lot about this yesterday, but he hasn't mm-hmm. yet found a good answer. Yeah, I mean, his answer is essentially... Guys, that was an endorsement I made during the first or second wave when you could argue that that Albertans uh, did seem to manage better than others. 
Um, but of course, I don't, you know, voters may not make that kind of fine distinction. Yeah. So he is probably going to get questions of that. But here's the other thing, Sammy. A whole lot of us have already made the decision to vote. Yes. And, uh, you know, nearly 7 million Canadians have cast a ballot either in advance polls or by mail. Uh, you know, more than a million Canadians or almost a million Canadians have voted by mail versus 50,000 last time. And let me just, uh, just before we came on air, Sammy, I was looking at the riding by riding breakdown. Mm-hmm. And there's some really interesting BC-specific data here. The top ridings in the country, if I look at, say, the top 10, like seven or eight are BC ridings for mail-in ballots. North Island Powell River on, on and Vancouver Island ridings. North Island Powell River, Courtney Alberni, Saanich Gulf Islands, Victoria, Nanaimo Ladysmith, all one, two, three, four, and six for mail-in ballots. Um, and I wonder if that is because of the B.C. provincial election, where we know the mail-in ballot was a big deal, and the B.C. NDP crushed the B.C. Liberals just on the mail-in ballot. So if I'm seeing all these mail-in ballots in B.C., I'm going to wonder, is that good for Jugmeet Singh and his group? I don't know. And then I look at the advance uh, voter turnout. This is in-person advance and just looking at BC alone, one, two, three, four, five, six, the top six ridings in BC for in-person advance votings are all held by the Conservatives. And the Conservatives do have a history of pushing their vote out to the advance votes early. That has been one of the secrets to the Conservative ground game. And as I'm looking at the BC numbers, Langley Aldergrove, where it's a, it's a rematch uh, between uh, Tamara Jensen and John Aldag, Langley Aldergrove is tops in the province for the um, increase in percentage of advance votes compared to 2019. So I'm throwing all these little details at you, Cindy, but I I mean, (laughs) this is how the election gets won, right? Langley Aldergrove, Kootenai Columbia, Caribou Prince George. Wait, there's one uh, liberal incumbent, number four, Burnaby North Seymour. That's Terry Beach. Um, And advance vote turnout has jumped by 30% this year. And I know that's going to be a riding we're going to watch. I know that the it's, you know, we think it's NDP versus liberal, but you remember in 2019, the conservative candidate there sort of had a bozo moment and had to withdraw. That not the case this time, and if you think of the Seymour part of Burnaby mm-hmm. North Seymour, that's above the uh, above Burrard Inlet. Uh, I think that's where you find BC Liberal voters and the Liberal Federal Liberal and Federal Conservative vote could split, and wow. maybe Burnaby North is New Democrat pretty much, and maybe that you know there's going to be some. Uh, believe me, like everybody's going to be keeping an eye and staying up late to watch how BC chooses these things and and these advance vote and mail in ballots, a whole new yes. level of uh, of interest. Okay, I know you're going to be there on election night as well. So what do you think are some of the wild cards that we should be watching for that might impact the results? The the Green Party and the People's Party. Listen, the Green Party has pretty much imploded across the country. They do not have candidates in 86 ridings. Um, Elizabeth May in Sandwich Gulf Islands, okay, she's likely to win on the strength of her name, but everywhere else, party's got no money. Where does this Green Party vote go? Um, typically in the West Coast, it might flow to the NDP. In Eastern Canada, maybe to the Liberals. So this is going to affect ridings, particularly ridings with no Green Party candidate, and that's 86 ridings. Then there's the People's Party, Maxime Bernier's party, united by the anti-vax, anti-mask sort of protests. Uh, these voters we know are younger, and many of them have never voted before. Will they show up to vote this time? Because historically, if you've never voted in the last election, you're probably not going to vote in this one. And we know younger voters tend not to vote. But there they go. The People's Party is polling, I don't know, 4 to 8%, depending on, on which pollster in which region. They're taking yes from the Conservatives. But get this. Apparently, uh, about 25% of the PPC support 
are people who voted green in 2019. So the PPC is a wild card. How they affect uh, the conservative vote, other kinds of votes, whether they even show up to vote, that mm-hmm. could impact close races as well. So those are the two big wild cards for you know forecasters like me as we try to figure out who's got the advantage going into this thing. Well, we'll be listening to you on election night, David. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. Cheers. David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent, wrapping up where we are at the campaign here with two days left to go. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about crime and disorder in the downtown core. This has become a hot topic recently. And as a result, Vancouver police said this week they are going to be redeploying officers in the area. Hardest hit? Granville Street and the West End. So the VPD saying they're going to deploy officers on foot and by bicycle to increase their street level police presence. Let's talk more about the kind of policing attitude towards this. Joining us now is Rob Gordon, Professor of Criminology at Simon Fraser University. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Simi. Now, I found it interesting that the VPD here said they were going to be redeploying officers to the downtown core. So do you think that they perhaps haven't paid enough attention to this? Well, it's possible. I mean, there are limits to the numbers of police officers, obviously. Um, This is just a way of concentrating uh, some of their officers in in this particular area. It's a tried and true police tactic. It, um, it usually does uh, work um, in the short term. Um, and it goes under different names. Uh, some people call it targeted enforcement, others intelligence-led enforcement, and so on. So it, it's, uh, it's, I wouldn't call it old hat, but it's certainly something that's been around for a while. Um, and that uh, police favour in order to deal with a particular local problem. Yeah, can you give us the theory behind that? So how does this work? Uh, Well, what you do is uh, flood an area with as many police officers as you can afford, Um, and they are a visible presence then, which provides um, reassurance to the community that's hit uh, by a particular problem, um, and also helps to prevent, uh, not instant, instantly, but uh, certainly, you know, within a few days, helps to prevent uh, any further outbreaks of uh, whatever the problem happens to be. Right. So, it, it, and oftentimes it leads to arrests. Arresting people is not necessarily the primary object of the exercise. It's more to uh, send a message out that this is inappropriate behavior, that it's not tolerated uh, by the community and by the police that uh, reflects the needs and wishes of that community. Um, and so uh, you better go and behave. Um, that's, that's the bottom line here. Right. So when you study policing then and techniques and what is effective, is that is it as simple as that, Rob, that visibility can make that much of a difference? Well, it's also yes, it can. Um, these things have some limits to them. Um, for example, it depends what it is. But usually, this it's deployment in order to address a particular criminal problem. Um, so, uh, for example, thefts from autos, um, which uh, you know, if you get a rash of those in uh, parking lots. Um, this this was the case a number of uh, years ago at uh, um, the SkyTrain stations around Metro, and the the deployment 
was not only police on bicycles, but also uh, CCTV. Uh, so it, it was made very obvious that uh, the, the police were around and watching. And uh, another strategy they used in that context was bait cars. Um, and it actually was very effective oh, yeah. in, in slowing down um, the numbers of vehicles being stolen, the numbers of vehicles being broken into. So it, it's, a good, it's a good tactic. It's tried and true. Oh, Rob, you there? Yes, I am. Oh, okay, good. Sorry, I thought we lost you there for a second. Um, okay, so if we know that it works. So then why don't we do it more often? Like, do we wait until... You know, things get bad before we deploy this. Why don't we do it more consistently? Well, it's expensive. Um, and because it's, uh, <laughs> there are limits to police resources, uh, you, uh, you can't have them uh, focused on uh, particular areas and particular activities all the time. There wouldn't be any capacity to meet the needs of the more general uh, community. So, um, and also it is problem-oriented. But once the problem goes away, once you can identify the problem, deal with it, and it goes away, you can move those units on to, to other activities. Right. So do we know, um, though, what happens to those crimes? Like, do they go elsewhere or do they just disappear? Well, that, that's a good point. Uh, displacement is one of the problems. I mean, the, the population that's, uh, or the portion of the population that's engaging in this stuff um, will disperse, uh, but they will likely pop up somewhere else. So you're not really um, rounding people up. Sometimes if it's problem-oriented because of a particular individual or group of individuals, um, then arrests will follow. Uh, and that can be effective so long as the individuals are incarcerated. Um, so displacement is one of the downsides of it. And that, of course, became a problem with, with SkyTrain and drugs in particular, um, a lot of a lot of these uh, individuals right. moved from uh, the downtown core and came out to uh, suburbs. Uh, in particular, New Westminster had a problem uh, of displacement. So it, it's it's not it is not uh, a long term strategy. It's or tactic. It's a, it's something that is short term value. But you have to go back around again often to address the problem again. So some police units or some police services that are large enough uh, have created special patrol groups that will uh, go and uh, hit a particular area uh, hard and fast um, and then move on to another one. They're usually around for you know, a few weeks until the problem goes away. But yeah, but uh, so, how do we make it sorry. a long-term solution then? Like, we, is this just a Band-Aid? Oh, well, Band-Aid. Um, I mean, you could call it that, but it's not a Band-Aid from the point of view of the community that's affected um, by whatever the activity happens to be. Uh, they see it as a, a, as a solution to their particular problem, and thank you very much, Constabulary. Um, and, but, yeah, I mean... It, in this particular instance um, that you're referring to here, the, these seem to be crimes of survival. Um, so people are engaging in, in theft and, and these sorts of things. Uh, and it may be linked to the homelessness issue, um, or it just may be uh, simply the case that you've got a portion of the population that 
uh, can't find its way uh, economically and the uh, opportunity to steal to survive is uh, very much there now that 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 can be addressed at the same time that the police are uh, engaging in uh, selective enforcement right so it sounds like we're going to be talking about this for a while yet right rob just to see what the results yeah. are well yes i mean it's, <laughs> it's fodder for criminologists that's for sure um keeps us in business but i mean <laughs> the, the, poli- the police officers involved uh, also find it useful, I think, to uh, be able to have an opportunity to refer these folks to to better right. uh, services for them. They're, they're not vindictive, usually, in the enforcement process. They've got a problem. The community's identified the problem. It's classic community policing. Um, what would you like us to do? Well, stop it. We want them, these folks to right. <laughs> to stop stealing from us and causing damage and so forth. Okay. This is how we'll deal with it. We'll swamp the area with uniformed police officers in the hope that this will uh, prevent further outbreaks. And it, it usually does. All right. Well, I guess we'll be talking to you again then about it. Rob, thank you. You're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, that brings back memories for people. I know. Our Raji Silhal is back with us this morning to talk about some opera. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, that's the uh, Lachma Flower Duet, uh, a famous opera that some people might remember from that commercial, the British Airways commercial, I think in the 80s. Um, Really memorable one, won a lot of awards. Anyways, (laughs) I digress. Opera fans are going to delight at the news that Vancouver Opera is ready for you. They are doing a bunch of big shows. They're happy to announce that things are going to be in person very soon. Uh, They're announcing their uh, December run of shows and that includes like HMS Pinafore by Gilbert and Sullivan but this weekend they are ready to tease people with some free performances outside and I know our weather is not great for it so I imagine there's going to be uh, some tents up and Simi I know you might not even be as much of an opera fan as I am I do like opera but that isn't necessarily saying much. Like opera is one of those things that some people feel you can only get into if you have the education, if you understand Italian and whatnot. I don't have the edu- music education to, to like really appreciate opera. I just, I just, I marvel at people being able to sing in these octaves, to perform in this way. And when you get to experience it in person, it's just so incredible. So there will be some phenomenal singing in person outside the Queen Elizabeth Theatre uh, this weekend, 1 o'clock and 4 o'clock on Saturday and Sunday. And uh, I talked to mezzo-soprano Leah Field. She is so ecstatic, is not even the word, to be performing for people again. I mean, she could be singing the phone book and it would be thrilling for her, for us. Uh, so she here she is just talking about how ecstatic she is. I hardly have words for how much this means to me. Um, I mean, for a million reasons, it's been an incredibly difficult 18 months for absolutely everybody on everybody around the world on everything from, you know, um, a globally catastrophic scale to, you know, the minutely personal. But those of us in the performing arts have really felt it in an acute way. And the last in person gig that I had, was on March 1st, 2020. 
And it was at the Orpheum and it was with a big orchestra and a choir and soloists. And it was a big grand operatic event. And since then, I've had the opportunity to do a little bit of online performance, but it's really not the same. So the opportunity to finally be able to make music with colleagues in person, in front of a live audience, like... I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed that I finally have this opportunity and I'm just so grateful. Oh, that is so lovely to hear, Raji. And you know, I went on a a learning curve binge about four or five years ago where I wanted to learn more about opera and Vancouver. I actually went to a Vancouver opera and I'm like, yeah, I was not, I didn't know anything about it. I'd always heard about it, but really my experience with it was what I saw in Looney Tunes. And I went (laughs) and we loved it. Like it was fantastic. So it doesn't really matter what your level of previous knowledge is. It's still an amazing experience. Totally. And then Simi, there's the going to the show itself, which is incredible, but it's not just about the experience of the performance and and being in that venue. I find it's also going to a show is like, oh, there's the anticipation all week long. There's the meeting up with friends for drinks or dinner afterwards to talk about it, to enjoy. And so I just feel that we have been missing out on so much of that stuff. It's going to be great to be in person again. And also the opera, one of the ones that they've announced for uh, this fall winter is Orfeo. It is the one to see because it's not a strict opera. Um, it's a dance performance inside an opera. And an Israeli choreographer has uh, organized that one. And he has worked with Ballet BC dancers. They're going to be in the show on stage. Now, this isn't something like, you know, like a rock concert where you've been having rehearsals for a while and then you get the band together and you hit the stage and go. No, they've been working on this for four years, four years of research, of rehearsals, of practicing, of getting costumes ready. It's going to be outstanding. Here's Idan Cohen, the choreographer of that one. So in a weird way, I'm staging the opera singers through movement and dance. So if you'll come to watch Orpheus and Eurydice, you will actually see a dance performance that is also an opera production. So you'll see the singers move and you'll see them taking place on stage together with dancers. That sounds phenomenal. Yeah, it does. And so again, for people who are not like pure opera opera fans, uh, this might be the one to see just because it's going to be incredible. You'll see lots of movement on stage. I did wonder how the the divas on stage are going to be uh, with uh, these dancers. Hopefully they uh, are not uh, outshone because uh, we know uh, the singers hold center stage in opera usually. Yeah, I'm just so excited that, you know, across BC, arts organizations are taking stage again and that we get to experience this is is really incredible. It does sound incredible. I know the Vancouver Opera always, every year they go out of their way to pick operas and perform them in such a way that make them feel more accessible to the audience. Totally. And this weekend doing these uh, performances outside I mean, potentially they'll even pick up new fans. Uh, I work on trying to expose my little kids to all different kinds of genres of stuff. Uh, Could be music, dance, whatever, sports even, stuff that I don't even necessarily enjoy myself that I might not get um, in the hopes that it opens up their mind to what else is out there. And I've been playing opera for them recently and they dig it. 
which I was kind of surprised at because maybe at that age I would not have. I was listening to Michael Jackson strictly when I was that age. <laughs> little kids, you never know. I remember when my daughter was really little, like a toddler, there was a TV commercial with a bear and the music that they used was Ave Maria. Mm. And so she loved that commercial so much that I went and got a CD that had Ave Maria on it. And she used to like cry for it in the car. Like she wanted to hear it. She called it the bear song. She wanted to hear it endlessly. So if you indulge your kids, you'd be surprised. Even TV commercials can be useful sometimes, right? I I love it. Probably a year ago, my kids were into Baby Shark. So I don't know uh, (laughs) if Ave Maria is for them, but we'll try it out. Baby Shark. (laughs) I know that when we went to the opera, because like obviously my husband was not that keen on it either, because he said, what am I going to do? We went there. He, they had subtitles. And that may seem like a small thing, but the fact that they had subtitles made it so much more enjoyable for him. Because yes, listening to the music is beautiful, even though if you don't understand the words, but actually knowing what the words mean heightens it for you too. Oh, that's cool. I know you're trying to learn a little bit of Italian right now, right? Yeah, it's not going well. Oh, no. Okay. So I was it's wondering if you could maybe pick up a word here or there when you're listening <laughs> to opera. I try hard. I try to close my eyes and do it to test myself, but I don't know. It's a, it's an uphill struggle on this one. I'm still trying on that one, but thank you for that, Raji. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks for that, Raji. People could check that out. Vancouver Opera with some performances this weekend. Go to their website. And you know what? It's for the public, so you can check it out. But it's so nice to hear that they are going to be coming back and doing in-person programming this December. So yes, go to their website for more information.